0: this morning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. We've looked at the Luke's narrative of Jesus' birth, which is the most extensive Gospel narrative of that, and we've seen the description about the temptation, and now we move into Jesus' public ministry. Hear the Word of God, beginning with Luke 4, verse 14, and going through verse 30. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. We come. To the point this morning in Luke's gospel, in which Jesus has now entered into his public ministry. And even though it's clear that Nazareth wasn't Jesus' first stop, Luke chooses to highlight what happened there. We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but from a young age he was raised in Nazareth. So he would have claimed Nazareth as his hometown. And so you can imagine the stir that it would have created when news of his powerful teaching and miraculous work elsewhere in Galilee began to filter back from other towns. Luke tells us that he was being glorified by all. You can be sure that the synagogue in Nazareth would have had standing room only when everyone heard that he was going to be there, and according to custom, everyone knew that certainly he would be the one who would be asked to preach. Can you imagine the expectation when Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah and he began to read? I'm sure some of the older folks there would have thought, I remember when Jesus was a little boy. Others might have thought, I used to play with him in the street. Certainly many would have thought, Jesus has always been such a good man, a man of kindness and love and integrity and wisdom. And at first... Everything seems to go well. Jesus preaches with grace and power, and all seem to be pleased. But Jesus knows that, even though they think his preaching style is excellent, they do not really agree with the claims he is making. And the response turns ugly. Jesus goes from favored son to hated enemy. So much so that the congregation becomes a mob and carries him to the outskirts of town and attempts to stone him by casting him off this precipice. They probably would have seen it as a judicial act of execution for someone who was blaspheming God. Isn't it an incredible response? What has gone wrong? What what did Jesus say that so ignited a firestorm Of animosity against him? I want to answer that question and look at our text under these three points. Number one, Jesus came to offer release from bondage to sin. Secondly, Jesus was claiming to be the long awaited Messiah. And finally, Jesus calls us to wholehearted belief in his person and work. First then, Jesus came to offer release from the bondage of sin, verses 16 to 19. Here were the people of God attending to weekly Sabbath worship in the synagogue, and Jesus is in their midst. We know from other sources that they would most likely have begun by singing some of the Old Testament psalms, but the center of their worship was reading and preaching the scriptures. It was always a dramatic moment when someone would take a sacred scroll of Scripture out of its container because the Bible wasn't written on books, as you may know at that point. They didn't have books. They had scrolls. And that attendant would give it to the teacher for the day who would unroll it carefully to the passage he wanted to teach or preach from. And then he would read it translating it most likely from the Hebrew in which it was written to Aramaic, which was the common language of the day. And while he was reading the scripture, he remained standing out of respect for God's word. Often there were two readings, one from the law and one from the prophets. And when this reading was finished, the scrolls were carefully put away, and then the teacher sat down in a special chair on a raised platform that signified his spiritual authority, and then he would begin to teach. And then finally, after the sermon, the service ended with prayers known as the 18 benedictions. Well, on this day, someone took out the the Isaiah scroll, We didn't know whether Jesus had asked for that scroll in advance, but they handed it to Jesus, who was clearly the one who was going to preach that day. And Jesus finds the place which we would call Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Of course, there were no chapters or verses in the scroll Uh, Not even any punctuation marks, like periods at the end of sentences. Not even any spaces between sentences or between words. Just continuous Hebrew letters. And on a side note here, clearly Jesus knew the Bible very well to be able to relatively quickly turn and scroll down to Isaiah 61 to read The Son of God, even the very Son of God, had devoted himself to knowing the Bible, the Word of God. That has application to all of us in our dedication to knowing God's Word. But here in these verses that he read, we see that the suffering servant, as he is called in Isaiah, whoever this is, is speaking about God's great day of salvation, where there is promised great liberation, and four kinds of people are described in verse, in, verse, in verse 18. The poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. And then the second verse speaks of the year of the Lord's favor. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't quote the second half of Isaiah 61 too, which speaks of the day of the Lord's vengeance. That is to wait for his second coming. Well, if his hearers knew their Bibles very well, they might have caught the prophet's reference in the beginning of verse 9 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which was a reference to the ancient custom of jubilee. According to the law of God, every 50th year, once every 50 years, that year was a special year of celebration in Israel called the year of jubilee. As we read in Leviticus 25, verse 10. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. This is what Isaiah meant by the year of the Lord's favor. The jubilee year was a year of amnesty when Slaves, or we might call them indentured servants, were set free from their servitude. It was a year of redemption when debtors were released from their debts and their financial burdens. It was a year of restoration when lost property, when lost land was returned to its rightful owners. Think of the promise. A release or liberty to these four categories of individuals that Isaiah speaks of. In each case, the primary sense is spiritual. First, we, we see, he says, to proclaim good news to the poor. Reminds us of the first beatitude, blessed are the poor, or in Matthew Matthew's gospel, the poor in spirit, those humbled by their sin and their spiritual need before God. We will see as we go through Luke Luke, that Luke's gospel has a special concern for the physically poor, the downtrodden, the outcasts of society. And there is that sense that the physically poor often have a greater awareness of their spiritual poverty, although not necessarily so. But the fundamental meaning of the poor is this sense of need for God's mercy. And also, we see that we're told he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives or prisoners. This could refer to prisoners of war. there probably wouldn 't have been any of those in Nazareth. Uh, also it could be those who were sold into slavery because of their debts, and so they had become indentured servants. But the spiritual sense would have been freedom from the captivity of sin, freedom from the bondage of sin through the forgiveness of sins and the words of Charles Wesley's famous hymn, he breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. In that sense, we can all say amen to that. We were prisoners apart from Christ. The third kind of people that Jesus proclaims to here are recovering of sight to the blind. And again, the idea of physical blindness Symbolizing spiritual sight, having your eyes open to see the glory of Jesus Christ, who He is with the eye of faith. And God has promised, we know, that one day every believer will actually see Jesus Christ in glory. That is our greatest and most glorious hope and joy. We see this theme. Of the recovery of spiritual sight, a number of times in Luke's gospel. Simeon, when Jesus is presented in Luke chapter 2, Simeon says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, speaking about seeing the Messiah. And in Acts 26 18, the Apostle Paul can describe his mission to the Gentiles in these words to open their eyes. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That idea of God opening one's eyes to the truth of the gospel. But then the the fourth category of individuals is to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Release and freedom to all of those crushed in spirit. To all of those shattered by the hard experiences of this life that there can be, or oppressed in some way, or wounded by wickedness in this world. We know that there is a lot of oppression in this world. And of course, the spiritual sense, all of us are oppressed by our sin and by Satan and his power. And Jesus has come to give us liberty in him. Well, clearly, the final fulfillment of this liberation and release is in the new heavens and the new earth. But there is a profound sense that if you have been set free in Jesus, you are, as he says, free indeed. We have received the deepest kind of freedom that there can be, no matter what our lives might be on this earth. This is the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim. You know, the words inscribed in the liberty bell in philadelphia are from leviticus 25:10 and they're echoed here in luke 4:18 the words on the bell are proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof and aren't we privileged as americans to be deeply grateful for our political freedom our freedom from political tyranny and oppression but have you come to know freedom from the tyranny and oppression and the penalty of sin by committing your life to Jesus Christ and putting your trust in the one who brings the very deepest kind of freedom freedom through the forgiveness of our sins and the granting us of new life in Him? Jesus came to preach release from bondage to sin. But secondly, Jesus was claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah, verses 20 to 21. Verse 20 really reflects this custom in the synagogue that someone would stand and read the Scripture and then sit down in this special chair and preach with this spiritual authority, and that's what Jesus did. And so it says that... uh, he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Such was the expectation. What is he going to say? We've heard so much about him already in other towns. And then Luke gives us a one-sentence summary of Jesus' entire sermon. Remember, we're just getting a summary here. And the summary is this, verse 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine the magnitude of what Jesus was claiming in his sermon? All that was foreshadowed by the year of Jubilee, all the release from bondage and captivity, he is saying that has been fulfilled today in your hearing. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the Jubilee year. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ, the suffering servant of Isaiah, who not only came to proclaim liberty, but came to accomplish it and usher in the great day of God's salvation. That would, I thought about this. It'd be kind of like me standing up here on the Sunday before the 4th of July and saying, Just so all you know, I am the fulfillment of July 4th. You all would say, uh, You know, let's usher him to the hospital. Something's wrong. Is it surprising that they reacted the way they did? Jesus is making a breathtaking claim. And in a moment, we will look at their rejection of that claim. But under this point, consider consider Jesus' claims. How have you responded to the claims of Christ? You see, Jesus is claiming to be more than a prophet. If that's all he claimed, and that's quite something to claim, I don't know that they would have reacted this way. He is claiming to be more than a good, uh, favored hometown boy or a good example in some way a man of integrity and honor. He's claiming to be the anointed one. That's what Christ means. He's claiming to be the son of God who alone by his death and resurrection, now they wouldn't have known that yet, but he's claiming that he is able to release all those who trust in him from their bondage to sin and death and hell and to raise us up to heaven. That's quite a claim. All through the gospel accounts, we see Jesus making claims like this. He says in the, in the Gospel of John, before Abraham was, I am. That means he existed before Abraham's time. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And rem- remember after his arrest, when he's before the Sanhedrin and he's solemnly charged to tell the truth, whether or not he was the Christ, he said, essentially, I am And from now on, he said that he would be seated at the right hand of the majesty of God. Jesus always claimed to be who he said he was. And each one of us must honestly ask ourselves, have I responded to the claims of Christ? Well, that brings us to their response, our third point. Jesus calls us to wholehearted belief in his person and work. Jesus calls us to wholehearted belief in him. Verses 22 to 30. What was the reaction to what he had to say? Verse 22. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Excuse me. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? To understand this verse, think of their response this way. They liked his sermon delivery, but they didn't like the message. It's like if you were watching a presidential debate and you were watching the debaters debate on stage and you said about one of them, "Wow, he's doing a great job. Look at that." But you didn't agree with anything he thought. But you agree with him. Or maybe a celebrity trial was going on in a courtroom and the defense attorney was really making a great case. And you said, wow, that defense attorney is wonderful. But I believe the person is guilty. You, know? <laughs> you don't agree with the content. And the key to their rejection is this phrase. You know, the first part of the verse, they marveled at his gracious words. Wow, he can really preach. But they said, is not this Joseph's son? In other words, how can Jesus claim to be the Messiah? We know him. We know where he's from. We've watched him grow up. Isn't it interesting? Their familiarity with Jesus blinded them to the truth of who he was. It's a dangerous thing. It's a great blessing to be raised in the church and in a covenant household with Christian parents, but it's also a dangerous thing to be so familiar with these things, that you can, in a sense, ignore them because they're so familiar. And verse 23 brings out another aspect of their unbelieving response. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What well, we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. This proverb, Physician, heal yourself, probably had to do with how people often looked at physicians In those days, we probably don't have the same view. I hope you don't have that view, but they would go to a physician and want reassurance that the prescribed remedy is actually going to work, or maybe even if it's safe. It would be like saying to the doctor next time you see him, you know, before you make me drink this prescription, I'd like you to drink it first, just to make sure it's okay. That's kind of the idea here. Physician, heal yourself. In other words... Uh, the second half of the verse shows us that Jesus knew their hearts. He saw their unbelief and apparently he knew they were thinking something like this. If you are the Messiah who is ushering this day of Jubilee, this day of God's favor, then prove it by doing some miracles for us right here and now. We've heard you've done them elsewhere. Do them for us. Show us you're the Messiah. You know, like, doctor, drink the medicine. Let me see how it works. Give us proof. And Jesus clearly knows that that is in their heart, and so he's responding to what he knows is going through their minds. Now, we know that from the Gospels, in fact, even next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at Jesus' miracles at the end of chapter 4. Jesus does many miracles throughout his public ministry to attest to his word and to who he is. But Jesus does not do miracles on demand. That's what they wanted. It's almost like one of us saying to God something like this, Jesus, I will believe in you if only you will do this one thing in my life. Fill in the blank. If only you will get me out of this financial mess. If only you will heal me. If only you will give me this person to be married to me or get me into this college or get me this job or change this in my life. And Jesus calls us to faith in him on the basis of evidence, historic evidence and testimony of who he is. The Bible is filled with that testimony and evidence. It's not a mindless faith. It's not an irrational leap of faith. It's based on the evidence that is given in God's word. But if we do not believe the Bible... We are kidding ourselves if we think we will believe if Jesus somehow gives us what we've told him we want as proof. Look at how Jesus makes this point in the next two examples he gives. First, in verses 25 and 26, he speaks of the widow of Zarephath. He says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel on the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. There was a great famine, not even any dew during these three and a half years. And then he says, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the town of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And if you go back there and read the story in 1 Kings, you find that she was very poor. She and her, her son were very poor. And they were about to make their last meal with the last little bit of flour and oil and then die. The famine was so bad. But in that account, the interesting thing and the point that I want us to see here is that Elijah first required that she make him a little cake of bread. It wasn't that Elijah was being selfish or something like that. No, this was what the Lord had told him to do to require faith before the miraculous provision which eventually came. This is the opposite of what the people in Nazareth were asking. They were asking for a miracle on demand as evidence. And Jesus does not give that. And the second example with Naaman in verse 27 is similar in in these same ways. He says, and there were many lepers in Israel. In the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman was from Syria, from far away, from far north, and he had come down. He was extremely wealthy. He was a general, but he was also aware of his great need because of his skin condition, his leprosy. And he expected Elisha to do some magical incantation over the spot or maybe say some words and things like that. But Elisha, through an intermediary, through Gehazi, he didn't even meet with him. He didn't even go out to tell him this, told him to go wash in the Jordan seven times. And you remember, Naaman was insulted by such treatment from the prophet. It really got to his pride. He said, aren't there rivers in Syria that are better than the Jordan? I could go bathe in those. But his advisors all, you know, as he left, they all told him, wouldn't you have done something hard? Why not do this? See, God was emphasizing to Naaman that it was all of grace. He can't buy salvation, he can't buy God's favor. And so Naaman eventually goes and bathes in the Jordan and he's healed. And the common factor that these two people had was the additional fact that both the widow and Naaman were Gentiles, they were not Jews. They were outsiders. That may have angered the people of Nazareth the most. They might have thought something like this. Jesus is putting us below the Gentiles. Who does he think we are? I like Philip Ryken's discussion of what they must have thought. We are good, law-keeping, Bible-believing, worship-attending Jews. Who did Jesus think they were? And who did Jesus think he was? Jesus thought they were sinners who needed salvation, just like any Gentiles did, all equally in need because of their sin. And Jesus knew who he was, the Lord of glory come to save them. And so they tried to stone him, to kill him. They took him to the brow of the hill, On which their little town sat. Maybe some of you have been there. I haven't. Probably the cliff was 30 to 50 feet high, and even being thrown off that cliff would have seriously injured someone enough to be able to drop large stones on him and kill him. But clearly, by the power of his person and the power of God, Jesus passed through their midst. Wouldn't you have wanted to see what that was like? And there's no record that he ever returned But clearly this attempt on his life foreshadowed the cross that he would give himself for sinners such as these, such as you and me. And so we're back to the question, what is your response to the claims of Christ? Do you recognize your need? Do you see something of the the great love and kindness of God in sending this suffering servant to proclaim liberty to all who will trust in him. The philosopher Bertrand Russell was what we would call an agnostic. He didn't know if there was a God, but he once told the Voltaire Society what he would say if he met God face to face. He told them he would say to the Lord on Judgment Day, not enough evidence, Lord, not enough evidence. Russell apparently thought that he should be able to set the terms for how God should make himself known to us. Doesn't it remind you of the people of Nazareth? He was not willing to take God at his word. The problem for skeptics is that Jesus does not give an in to our demands. Jesus is very sympathetic with our doubts. And most All Christians go through doubts at different times. That's a different thing. But... To be skeptical in this fundamental way. Yes, Jesus gives evidence. He gives abundant evidence. He rose victoriously from the dead. He was seen by hundreds of witnesses. The Bible records this. Since then, He has transformed millions of lives around the world by the gospel. But Jesus insists that we come to Him on His terms or not at all. We come poor in spirit, captive and blind, but trusting Jesus Christ alone to give us eyes to see, to give us a new heart, to forgive us of our sins, and to give us eternal life with him. May you trust in him this day. Amen. Amen. Father, we are humbled by the gospel. We are humbled by your love shown to us and demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. Forgive us for our blindness and hardness of heart and work in our lives, Lord, that we might seek you, that we might know you, that we might rejoice in the freedom that Jesus gives. We pray in his name. Amen.